We as humans make sense of everything through story. The biggest takeaway here is stories about something internal that happens in the belief system. Promise, there's no note taking. We'll all be present and alive in it. Or tape it. (laughs) Well, we're doing that. (laughs) Otherwise, we're in trouble. When you're using story to convince somebody of something, there's another step to it that you must do. And that is... Welcome to the Being Human podcast with Amelia Vegting and Jez Francis. Brought to you by Just Add Water. Hello, I'm Jez Francis. And I'm Amelia Vegting, and welcome to the Being Human podcast, where with special guests we explore what it means to be human in this world we find ourselves living in. So here we are, episode 10, can you believe it? I know, exciting. I'm really excited about today's conversation, which is going to be on the subject of story. So look, I'm not going to reveal the name of our guest just yet, but she's written some of the books that have become essential reading for people we've worked with over the years on harnessing the power of stories, you know, what they are, why we crave them and and how to shape them. Yeah, I have to say the whole craft of storytelling was something that I didn't think too much about in a conscious sense. You know, I've always enjoyed going to the cinema to see, you know, good film, Barbie being my latest watch. Have you seen that yet, Jess? No, I've seen Oppenheimer, but not Barbie. Well, both very good films. You know, or going to see the musical at the theatre or getting into, you know, a really good book that just pages just keep turning and turning and you can't put it down. But, you know, I'd never really spent time thinking about the how and why of story, you know, until joining Just Add Water and getting involved in some of the work that we do, you know, helping people understand the power of a strong narrative and, you know, making messages land and stick with all sorts of different audiences. Mm. You know, Jez, you always, whenever we talk about it, you always throw the line in, facts and figures don't change hearts and minds. Yeah, it does sound a bit cliche, doesn't it? But it's <laughs> it's so true. It's our emotional response to facts placed in a story that we remember, that, that move us, that make us act. Mm. Whether that's Barack Obama's acceptance speech story about change being possible, told through events that Anne Nixon Cooper had witnessed in her long lifetime or if you think some of the the sort of singer songwriters and the stories they craft Sam Fender's song 17 going under about him trying to care physically and financially for his mum when he was just a kid himself but look we're going to get into all things story with our wonderful guest in just a moment but before we do that do you want to kick us off Amelia with a boring story absolutely I do boring things about Yes, boring things about me, our homage to the beautifully bland, the marvellously mundane moments in our lives that are a hallmark of human existence. So, go on, Amelia, what's your boring story you've got to share? You haven't had any more food shopping disasters, have you? (laughs) No, not anything shopping related this time. However, I am going to take us back to the world of travel efficiency. Since I've um, now moved flat, I've had to learn some new travel efficiency routes. All right. So, I know, exciting. So, my current flat is closest to the Northern Line which for those that don't know is one of the tube lines in London that has multiple different destinations it's not a straight up straight down one and even within the middle of the line it splits off and goes into two different directions and comes back together and goes off again so, so it can be quite confusing can be quite confusing but important context because What's quite annoying about the functionality of this Northern Line is that you can sometimes end up waiting, you know, sort of seven to ten minutes for your correct tube whilst all the others go past that Mm. aren't heading into the direction that you want. So 
I have now worked out more or less down to the minute of the exact time I need to leave my flat so that when I arrive at the station, I can walk gracefully Mm. onto the platform with my tube due in one minute exactly. And I've even factored in allowing time to stand on the escalator that goes down rather than having to sprint down it and getting all hot and bothered once you get on the tube. So I'm back on top with my travel efficiency on my way into work. I always get quite anxious looking at people running down the escalators, mm. um, fearing the worst. Yeah, <laughs> Trip some, and fall. some sort of episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think these Amazon reviews are for? Oh, go on. You need this in your life. Five stars. <laughs> I never leave home without it. Five stars. The perfect travelling companion. Five stars. And this one's my favourite. It's not truly global as advertised, but it's not far off. Four stars. <laughs> I like your Amazon review voice. It's very good. They are, in fact, for a universal travel adapter with with both USB-C and regular USB ports included. So uh, charging phones on our holidays has often been a source of family conflict. So I thought I'd live a little this time around, take the plunge and buy one of these things for our recent trip to Vietnam. Um, With hindsight, I perhaps should have just said to Rebecca that I bought a travel adapter rather than saying, you know, I've bought you something for the holiday. (laughs) And then surprising her with it. Oh, Jess. She, she looked a little disappointed, I have to say, when I presented the Amazon package for her to open. I, I did point out that it had retractable pins to cover almost any socket and plug eventuality mm. and that, that it had built-in power surge fuse protection, but none of that seemed to really make much difference, strangely. <laughs> However, it worked like a dream on holiday and reduced considerably the tension that charging multiple phones has always brought about in the past so Mm. my only disappointment is that neither rebecca nor the kids cited the travel adapter in their top three holiday highlights (laughs) i'm quite glad they didn't actually there you go you can't please them all can you Well, enough of us and our boring things about me. I think it's time to get into some proper storytelling, don't you think? Yes. So today we've got one of our storytelling heroines with us. Joining us is the brilliant story coach, Lisa Cron, author of best-selling books, Wired for Story, Story Genius and Story or Die. She really is our storytelling expert. Lisa works with writers, non-profits, teachers and organisations, helping them to master the power of story. So Lisa, welcome to the Being Human podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. We are really excited to get into today's conversation. But just before we do, we'd love to ask you a few more questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Absolutely. Okay, so picture this. You've suddenly been transported into 2035. You're in a room and you've got five minutes there and all you have with you is a computer. What would you hit into Google? Actually, I would do what they did in the movie Back to the Future 3, and I would look at every sports contest, and I would see who won from the minute I got back, and then I would get back, and I would make a ton of money so I could change the world in the way that I wanted to, because money is power. We did think about that, didn't we? Yeah, we were thinking, thinking, what lottery numbers would you Google and then be able to put into your lucky dip? What would you do, (laughs) Amelia? It's hard, because you start thinking about all the things that you'd want to sort of find out about, you know, who which band is number one and you could start listening to them and become one of their like number one fans and you've been one the from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I'm very <laughs> Even good, though, yeah. What about you, Jez? What would you do? I think I'd like to know what my children have been up to. Oh, yes. The other thing I thought of was I'm curious about how we respond to some of the climate challenges that we're facing. So I'd be quite keen to get a, 
the snapshot glimpse yeah a glimpse of whether we've risen to the challenge that we've created for ourselves and done something about it yeah it, it would be interesting wouldn't it yeah so lisa if you could have a dinner party with three other famous people who would you choose and why i don't really want to talk to famous people largely because i would be really intimidated. So I just sit there and listen and be very nervous. And I can't think of anybody. But when I really thought about it, here's my actual answer. I would bring in the three most, and I don't know which ones they would be, uh, seminal American, quote unquote, founding fathers. And I would ask them, I would say, when you did the Second Amendment and you said we had a right to guns, what did you really mean? And here's an AK-47. Did you really mean you want us all to have that? Could you please (laughs) change what you've written here so that we don't have a country where everybody's shooting everybody else? (laughs) That's what I would do. A lot of wanting to change the world, Lisa, you've got going in your responses. Absolutely. (laughs) What is the most memorable or influential lesson you've learned from, you know, a family member or a close friend? That's really interesting. And the biggest thing I can think of as a business thing, I used to, when I would work with writers, I would write notes and it would take me forever. And I cannot put into words how much I hated it. (laughs) I hated doing it. It felt unnecessary. It felt like everything had to be perfect, but I felt like it was expected and I would need to do it. And I've said it to someone I was working with and she said, well, just don't do that anymore. Don't offer it. Don't do it. And I thought, are you kidding me? This is like, this is what everybody expects. And she said, if you hate it, don't do it. So I stopped doing it. And not only did it make no negative effect, it brought me in more clients. Um, And I could give, you know, long reasons why I think notes are worthless and blah, blah, blah. But it was the freedom to kind of break what I thought was uh, intractable. This is what defines what I do. And she's like, I just don't do it. And Mm. she was 100% right. So that was the best business advice I ever got. There's some interesting lessons in there, isn't there? One of which is do what you love or don't do stuff that you hate. And the other thing I've found as well with, and note taking is an art, but I know there are people that claim to be able to both take notes and listen at the same time, but it is quite hard to do. It's hard to be present when you're note taking. Yeah. Maybe have someone else there taking the notes. <laughs> yeah. I tell people to tape it. Yeah. But it, it but notes don't do any good because I won't even go into why. That would take time. <laughs> but notes, I just, just suffice to say, notes really don't do any good. In fact, they tend to take people more in the wrong direction than what a really rousing back and forth conversation actually does allow you to dig into when you're talking about, you know, story or what somebody's written. Well, promise there's no note taking in this conversation right now. So we'll all be all be present and alive in it. Or tape it. (laughs) Well, we're doing that. Otherwise, otherwise we're in trouble. (laughs) Chris won't be happy. (laughs) Lisa, if you were at a party, what song would the DJ have to put on to get you onto the dance floor? Okay, well, actually, ever since even being an early teenager, I... When it comes to the kind of dancing that, you know, that it happens in clubs, I don't understand why people like that. <laughs> I, the answer is nothing. However, the truth is much later in life, I learned, believe it or not, how to ballroom dance, which is something I had avoided my whole entire life because it seems sort of like vaguely Republican, like right wing, like you're wearing gloves. And, um, and I realized that so deeply was not true. So I don't know if it would be a DJ and if there was a good partner, um, it would be something like they can't take that away from me. And it would be a Foxtrot or a waltz, which I know it sounds staid and boring, but I am telling you those dances are so amazingly freeing. That's not boring at all. Usually everyone goes for, I don't know, dancing queen by ABBA. That's a brilliant response. No. (laughs) 
Lisa, what's your favorite way to unwind and relax after a stressful day? I think I love what I do so much that it actually isn't stressful. I mean, I wake up in the morning and I start, you know, talking to clients. I am probably on the phone. I love to talk, as you can probably tell. I am the opposite of a quote unquote introvert. There is nothing (laughs) that makes me happier than talking and connecting with people. So I was super lucky when the pandemic hit because I could still do what I was doing and still was completely, you know, connected with people. Mm. I would say, if I had to say, what do I find the most relaxing? And this is kind of embarrassing. It's actually, I do every day in the New York Times, I do their Wordle and their Same. spelling bee. And I find that surprisingly relaxing. Have you tried their um, their recent one, the new Connections that has come out as well? No, and I got a friend of mine's good friend is the one who puts that together. So no I way. actually saw, uh, yeah, I, I saw uh, like a beta version of it, but I haven't done it yet. In fact, you just reminded me of it because I've been meaning to go in and do it. Yeah, oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah, well, Wordle and Connections are my two that I either do sort of on my way into work or just as I'm about to go to bed. So no, I they're, they're brilliant ways to unwind and sort of take your brain elsewhere. So Lisa, can you describe a turning point or a defining moment in your life that shaped who you are today. Yeah. I don't know if shaped is the right word, but I think it's really interesting how sometimes a random thing happens and that changes everything. There was a time several decades ago when, <laughs> when there was a movie and my best friend from the age of 16 to now was I was living in New York City and he would come to New York City in the summer for a bit and then go to Europe for a couple of months and then come back, which is he had that break in his in his work schedule. And we, from the time we were kids, teenagers, we used to see every movie that came out. That was our thing. And when I say every movie, I mean we drive 50 miles, 100 miles to see, to see a movie. It was only playing in one place. And so we would see before he left to go to Europe, all the movies that would be gone by the time he got back. And this was one of those movies. Here's where it gets to the embarrassing part. So I went and saw it. And I ended up with a massive crush on the star, you know, who dies in the end. I had such a crush on him. And it made me angry because he was like, I think, 13 years younger than me. And I thought, this is really unfair. Like in movies, you know, you see the, you know, the male lead and, you know, the female lead, the male lead is like 60 something and the female lead's 30. That's fine. You know, but if it's just even a few years and the woman's younger, forget it. So I sat down. And I wrote a script. I was in screenwriting at that point. So I wrote a script that was, you know, younger man, older woman. And that script got me to, again, my same best friend who was a professional poker player at the time and played poker with a guy who was a producer. And he really liked the script. He didn't produce it, but he brought me in because he was doing television at that time. So I would fly to LA and work on the shows that he was working on. And that changed everything. If it wasn't for that, that got me into TV, that got me into into story, uh, into the story work that I've done. And again, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if I'd not gone to see that movie at that time. Like, how random is that? What was the movie? I've got to ask you. Okay, it's embarrassing. Um, It was a movie called Untamed Heart. And the star I fell madly in love with was Christian Slater. So let's 
shift our focus onto story. Can you share with us a little bit about your background and how you became so passionate about storytelling? Sure. And I would say I would, I I always shy away from the word storytelling because it sounds like it's a live thing and someone's telling a story. And my love is story itself, which I think Mm. is vastly misunderstood. And for me, I mean, I wanted to be a writer. So I went into publishing, you know, right after college. And that sort of pulled me in when I I worked at W.W. Norton. And at that time, anybody could read manuscripts. Like if you worked there, you could read manuscripts and then give advice so, you know, did they or did they not want to want to publish it? So I did that. And then years later, um, I was working for the studios. I was reading books to film. Like, could this be a movie? Or, you know, and also for, you know, I was an agent. Could this be published? And what I realized reading manuscript after manuscript is that where they went wrong had nothing to do with what I'd been taught stories were supposed to be, was what I'd been taught pulled us in. I'd been taught that what pulls us in is a rippering plot and beautiful, lovely, luscious writing. And then if you have talent, you unleash it, then the story appears. And that had nothing to do with what actually was pulling us in. And for me, that's what I wanted to go out. I became an evangelist for story. I started, again, teaching at that point. I had a writing workshop. I started teaching at UCLA. And what I realized was nobody else was teaching what I was teaching. Nobody was going into what is it really that hooks us and why, and where does that come from? And what is it that's bringing us in? And I mean, as I'm, as I'm fond of saying, and I say this to writers all the time, if the writing world, meaning the world that gives advice to writers was a person. And I used to say, I would punch it in the nose and go to jail happily, a metaphor, don't want to go to jail. <laughs> Because everything it says is like 180 degrees wrong. It's wrong about what story is. I mean, the world is wrong about what story is because it's wrong about a lot of other things. What the world's wrong about is what emotion is. Yeah. Emotion is what pulls us into every story. Emotion is how we make sense of everything. And we've got a completely wrong view of what emotion is. The cornerstone of Western civilization, which came from Plato, and I say Plato bless his heart, because it was completely wrong. He said, you know, that you've got these two binary poles, you've got logic and reason, you know, which is how we make sense of everything. And then we've got emotion. And the sole goal of emotion is basically to subvert reason. And that could not be less true. If we couldn't feel emotion, we couldn't make a single rational decision. Because emotion is what telegraphs meaning. So we don't have to sit and think about it. If we couldn't feel we couldn't make a single rational decision, and we certainly wouldn't be reading and being pulled into story. And that means that what pulls us into story isn't the plot and isn't the beautiful writing. It's the way your main character, your point of view character, is making sense of what's going on as they struggle with the tough decision they've got to make on the page, in the moment. So we are in their head. Mm. And realizing that is what again, made me this evangelist. And I was really lucky. My timing was really good because at the same, I thought that was sort of, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, my theory that I'd stumbled onto something that I thought was true. And neuroscience was burgeoning at that time. And I realized in starting to read neuroscience that what I thought of as my theory was actually biological fact. We are wired to story. It is wired into the architecture of our brain. We as humans make sense of everything through through story. story. Yeah. And by that, I mean, how is that going to affect me given my agenda? Is it going to help me or is it going to hurt me? You, you, me, all of us, every human comes to everything 
asking that basic question. Mm. The way that we make sense of things is based on one thing and one thing only, and that is what our past experience has taught us that those things mean. And that's the lens through which we're looking at things, and that's where our psychological, emotional reaction to things comes from. And all of that is story. Um, What are the key elements that contribute to creating a compelling and engaging story? Let's just talk about what a story is very quickly, and then we'll talk about those three elements. A story is about how somebody deals with a problem they cannot avoid and how something in their belief system has to shift in order for them to either solve the problem or see it as something very different than they thought it was to begin with. That's what a story is. The biggest takeaway here is story is not about something external that happens. Story is about something internal that happens in the belief system of the protagonist. Mm. It's about that aha moment at the end that we're building to all the way through. Mm. That's what stories are about. And that's what a story is. Without that, you just have what most manuscripts are. I mean, as I'm fond of saying, I can't tell you how many manuscripts I've read, or if you asked me, what's it about? I'd say, it's about 300 pages. I have no idea. (laughs) It's It's just a bunch of things that happen. And that's because it's not this external thing. We don't come to story for what is going on in the external world because we live in that world. We see it. We've got it mastered. We know how to survive in the external world. We want to know what's going on inside. That's what we come for. Story is the difference between what we say out loud and what we're really thinking when we say it, Mm. you know, because how often is what you're saying and what you're thinking the same thing and which one is more interesting Mm. and which one is juicier and which one is more revealing Yeah, is what we're really thinking. I mean, it reminds me, and this is again, what stories are about. I once had a student at UCLA and she said, I know on the surface, I look really put together. And she did. I mean, she re- she looked so put together that when she said that, it didn't even sound snotty. It sounds like, <laughs> yeah, you really do. But she said, but inside, I'm a raging mess. And I'm trying to keep all of you from seeing it. Stories about the raging mess on the inside. Mm. It's about the vulnerability, what we're trying to keep other people from seeing. That's where story lives and breathes. And so what you need in the beginning of a story to pull anybody in, there's a chemical cocktail. And this goes to business as well. This is, in fact, this chemical cocktail, I first stumbled on it reading, I think it was Paul Zak, who was doing research in, you know, if you get uh, some sort of a fundraising letter, what is it that makes people give even, you know, afterwards, they've read the letter and now they're actually going to. And it's a chemical cocktail. And that is of of the first one is dopamine, which I think is is often misunderstood as the pleasure hormone, but it isn't actually that. Dopamine is curiosity that you might have pleasure, you know, that you might have that an email's in and you get that, that surge of dopamine. Well, that's not the pleasure of, oh my God, I got an email. It's a pleasure of, oh my God, maybe that email is telling me I won the lottery. I didn't even join. Yeah. It's anticipation. Yeah. It's something might happen. It's curiosity. So the first is curiosity. Mm. And the way that we get that in a story is something is happening that breaks a pattern. There's some sort of a surprise. I thought one thing was going to happen and something else happened instead. So you've got that surprise. The next is cortisol, the stress hormone, one we're way more familiar with now <laughs> than we were a few years ago. Let's yeah. face it. And that's something is at stake. And the key thing, those two things are not enough. 
The third hormone, and this is the one that often goes missing, especially in stories, not necessarily, you know, novels or movies or whatever, but in business when you're trying to convince someone of something, or even, you know, when you're trying to convince your teen not to text and drive. And that's oxytocin which is the empathy hormone. And Mm. we get that because someone is vulnerable. And it's that vulnerability piece that's so easy to go missing. You know, as that one student said, you know, I'm I'm inside, I'm a raging mess, and I don't want people to see it. So they will tell stories where there isn't something they don't know, where there isn't some sort of a, for lack of a better word, mistake that they've made or misunderstanding they've got. We need to really understand, again, in the story and what's going to pull us in, why this thing that's happened, this thing that's at stake, is really going to matter to this character, and we've sort of got some notion as to why. You get those three things, and they can be in, in a single sentence. You get those three things right there, and you've got your reader or, or, you know, or your audience is, is immediately hooked. It's funny, there's a, a saying you hear a lot, I think it was Coleridge who said, to get lost in a story demands a willing suspension of disbelief. Mm. And that couldn't be less true because it implies choice, right? It implies that you have that choice and you're going to go, do I want it or don't I? I don't know. When a story grabs you, you don't have any choice. It is biological. You are there. They've gone, they've done, you know, fMRI studies, you know, functional MRI studies that show when you're lost in a story, same areas of your brain light up that would light up if you're really there. What's a story that you think really brings the art of story to life? The movie that I often use, believe it or not, is the original Die Hard. (laughs) If you've ever seen it, I best Christmas movie ever, in my opinion, I watch it every year. I think it is so deeply good, but I mean, it is a perfect example of what a movie is is about because it's easy to go, well, what is that movie about? Well, it's about is Bruce Willis, you know, going to go and kill all of the pseudo terrorists before they blow up Nakitoma Plaza. You know, it's not about, is he going to save all the people in the building and his wife? What that movie is actually about is will Bruce Willis win his wife back? That's what we're watching. Not will he save her, but is he going to win her back? And it's something that we find out in the very beginning of that movie because it opens and, you know, the basic story of it is, is that he's a New York City cop and he's very good at what he does. And she was also very good at what she did. This is backstory, backstory being the most seminal layer of story, all story logic, because all story logic is subjective, meaning the protagonist, how they're seeing things is, is, uh, is, you know, all story logic comes from backstory. So, you know, they lived in New York. He was a cop. She had some big job in finance. They never say what it was, but you know, she gets a gold watch. So she's clearly very good at it. And she gets this big promotion and she says, you know, come on, honey, you know, let's, we're going to move to LA. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not going, I'm not going to do that. And the question is why? And stories are about, again, like I said, something in somebody's belief system has mm. to shift. So he had a misbelief that needed to shift. And what was that misbelief? It basically was on one level, well, wait a minute, I'm the guy. And we stay where the, you know, last time I looked, I was still the guy. So we're staying where the guy's job is. What do you mean we have to look? I mean, he had that very traditional rule book. The real reason why was fear, right? He was a New York City cop. If there's one thing you can't be in LA, it's a New York City cop by definition. And he was afraid of going into the unknown. So he did what we all do when we've got a problem. And he says this in the very 
beginning. He says it to Argyle, the driver who's taking him to this building. He goes, hey, you married man? And he's like, no, separated. And he goes, what happened? And he says, well, my wife got this big promotion and I'm coming out to see. And he goes, oh, you thought she was going to bomb out and, you know, and get fired from her job or it wouldn't be good or she'd miss you so much and she'd come back and then everything could go back to the way that it was. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Because mm-hmm. that's what people do when they're, when they're faced with big problems. Usually nothing. They take a nap. I'll take a nap and it's going to go away on its own. But that's not what happened. And in life, in literature as in life, obviously nothing ever goes back to the way it was. You can't put your foot in the same river twice. Mm. So he goes back and he's assuming that they are going to get back together. But of course, and they might because we know she loves him too. But then he says something really snarky to her and she gets angry and storms off. And now we've got the pseudo terrorists coming through and they're going to shoot and kill everybody. But what we're watching scene by scene by scene by scene, it's not just is he going to be able to, like I said, you know, do them in and then save everybody. It's is he going to be able to win his wife back? And is he going to realize how he lost her? And you get a scene toward the end Right. And if you've ever watched a movie, there is this metric where if it's going to have a happy ending, it looks like by the time you get to the end of act two, all is lost and everybody's going to die. Or as in the case with Untamed Heart, (laughs) when you're going to have a sad ending, you get toward, you know, the very end and it looks like everything's going to be okay. You know, if you think, oh my God, it's not going to have the sad ending. And then you look at your watch and you go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, there's 20 more minutes. (laughs) Not going to go well. Better turn it off now because you can imagine it went well. But there is a scene, you know, toward the end of Die Hard where Bruce Willis, he's talking to Al, his cop best friend. It's a very early bromance also. And he says to him, he's on the walkie talkie and he goes, Al, I got a bad feeling. I don't think I'm going to make it out of here alive. He goes, when all of this is over, I want you to find my wife. Don't ask me how. By then you'll know. And I want you to tell her, you know, honey, I said I love you a thousand times, but I never said I'm sorry, because what he is, it's a longer speech. And what he's realized is he says, I should have supported her. I should have been there for her. When she said she was going to go, I should have been behind her. I should have been for her. And I didn't. And I wasn't. So he's now had that turnaround. He's realized the mistake that he's made. Mm. And then, of course, that is what gives him often the aha moment is something where they realize something and that changes things. What it did for him at that moment was it gave him the last ditch effort to get up and then as we all know <laughs> basically kill everybody else <laughs> except for the one guy he leaves for out to kill um but that's what that movie's about that's why we really love it at the end mm. because he won his wife back that would be an example of yeah. what a story is and the difference between the plot because the plot's about you know is he going to kill those guys that's a plot you need a plot but the plot is what forces him to reevaluate something in his belief system and change. And change, yeah. yeah. How can we, as mere mortals, kind of <laughs> use some of the story techniques to better engage our audiences and convey our messages differently? Well, here's the thing. When you're using story to convince somebody of something, there's another step to it mm. that you must do before you get to creating any story. And that is when you're trying to change what somebody is doing, you need to, and this is really, really hard. You need to step out of how you see things mm-hmm. and your opinion of it 
and look at them and try to figure out why they believe what they believe and not do it in a snarky way, not doing it in a way of going, Oh my God, they're such an idiot. Or how could they be so (laughs) dumb? Or how could they be so selfish? Or, you know, or they're so ignorant. So you really have to ask yourself, well, this thing that you want somebody to change, why are they doing it? What Mm. does it mean to them? You're asking them to give something up, not why are they doing it in your opinion, but why are they doing it in their opinion? And then if you want them to do something else, the question is, why would that be something that they would embrace given their belief system? Not your belief system, mm. but their belief system. That really is the key thing. If you can't do that, it doesn't matter. It can be very alienating because you're coming at it as if they see the world the same way you do. And if they did, you wouldn't have to convince them. Of, they don't be doing the thing you want them to do. <laughs> and it's where so many people, in, particularly in the world of work, I think leaders trying to engage, elicit a, a shift in mindset or behavior from their people where perhaps they go wrong. It's that kind of top-down broadcasting rather than a, a willingness to understand Rude. and empathize and, yeah. and feel what's going on in the world of, of the folks that they're trying to connect with. No, absolutely. Stepping into their shoes. It's not an easy thing to do. And I can imagine it takes a lot of practice Do you have any exercises or practices to tap into story more within our days and kind of strengthen our storytelling muscles? I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the biggest thing I would say, story isn't about what. Story is about why. Why is somebody doing it? And I think the biggest thing that a person can do is to look at somebody doing something, especially something that they wouldn't do, and try to figure out why and really write that down. Or even, I mean, here's another way to do it. Ask yourself that question. Mm. Why? And go down. I think there is something out there called like the five whys or the three whys. Because when, when somebody's asked, why are you doing something? Almost always, the first answer we give is the most neutral one, the one that's not going to get us into trouble at all. But then you go, yeah, but why? But go deeper, why? And then, Mm -hmm. yeah, but why are you doing that? Go deeper, why? Yeah, but okay, I hear that, why? I would really chase things down to the deepest why you can get to, because that's what stories are about. Again, not the what, but the why. So really asking that question and trying to do it without for lack of a better way of saying it, judgment. It's always about empathy. If you can't empathize, you can't change someone. So that would be what I would say would be the, the way to start asking because you you it definitely helps you with your significant other and yourself going well they're not doing it for this reason that it seems like on the surface i bet it's something else so it definitely makes makes it definitely makes for better relationships for sure yeah i'm i'm really drawn to in particular the idea of a regular practice of of you know when you read something in the newspaper or you see something on tv or someone says something that that you have a visceral reaction to going there and exploring that and asking yourself, why am I having this reaction? Let's explore that further. I think that's a really powerful discipline to get into. Yeah. And here's a really interesting biological fact. When you're like reading something and it's the opposite of what you believe or someone says it, and you get that feeling, right? Visceral feeling. I mean, Mm. that metaphor, your blood boils is really, is really true. And it's easy to think, oh, what's wrong with me? I get so angry. I get so... 
And the truth is that is a biological reaction. Your brain is trying to protect you. In the way that we evolved, the notion of something that challenges your belief system is processed in your brain as if somebody has come at you with a baseball bat. It is mm. exactly the same. Here's a fun fact. When somebody says something that challenges what you believe, and even if it's they say that you know their toothpaste is better than yours, <laughs> blood rushes to your thighs in case you need to make a quick getaway. Mm. It is exactly the same. In other words, it's a biological reaction. I think one of the biggest problems that we have is we've decided that we have control over everything and we don't. And so much of the things that we beat ourselves up for is biology. We don't have that choice. I'm going to uh, not be able to listen or watch a movie or listen to a song about a story or read a book in the same way, having had this conversation with you, Lisa. Yeah, <laughs> neither. Neither. Uh, but it's, it confirms so much of what we know and the work we do with people around the, the power of story to engage with others and help move them to action, to get them to think in a different way, to shift mindset and behavior. Well, look, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. There's nothing I love more than talking story. I could go on for hours and hours, for sure. Oh my gosh, Jazz, what a conversation. I mean, where, where, where do we even begin? What did you think? Oh, I could listen to Lisa forever. The, the thing she said that for me really hit home, you know, was how we're all wired to make sense of our experiences through story. It's how we remember things, you know, how events, circumstances and people made us feel. It's how we make sense of what's happening today when we read things in the newspaper, mm. we see things on TV, and it's how we plan for the future. So almost back to what you and I were talking about right at the start, it is those facts placed in context and then wrapped in emotion mm. that move us to think or act differently. You know, those PowerPoints, for example, with a bunch of numbers or words on aren't going to change how people feel and what they do as a result. But a personal story about how those facts relate to what your audience yeah. believes in stands a much better chance of doing mm. so. I just love the fact that Lisa, you know, really broke it down and made it quite digestible. So, you know, starting with that um, peak of curiosity mm. that you need to hit, you know, getting getting dopamine rushing through people's brains, curious about what you're about to say, followed by the cortisol as you uncover a stressful moment or decisions that someone's going through within the story you're telling. And then finally, that release of oxytocin as you empathise with that character and what they're going through. I think it's really made me think about next time I want to use story to either, you know, capture someone's attention and change their behaviour, that it would be important to challenge myself on whether I've truly hit all three of those stages. I thought it was a brilliant and fascinating conversation. Well, that's all from us for another episode of the Being Human podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and as always, we hope you enjoy the bloopers at the end. I think they share a little highlight and insight into perhaps how the story of our episodes come together. Definitely. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, please do hit the follow button and leave us a review on whichever platform you use. And if you've got any suggestions on topics you'd like us to explore, or if you'd like to be a guest, or if you want to talk to us about the work that we do, please do get in touch. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Being Human podcast. Brought to you by Just Add Water. Nurturing individual brilliance, forging collective strength. <laughs> oh, is it going to be one of those days? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the co I don't think we should have coffee. I don't think I should be allowed it before. It's like giving children Haribo, isn't it? I won't say anything. I'll just laugh. Um,
okay, proper hearty, you know, like you've never heard this before and it's like, this is well, live at the if Apollo. if you give it in that delivery, then you'll get that. All oh, right, so it's on me. Okay, <laughs> it's on fine, you. So. <laughs> so here we are, Amelia, episode 10. Crazy. Can you believe that it? That was weird. Sorry, can we start again? Yep. I should have just Crazy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's really strange. Crazy for feeling. It feels like it's going to be a long afternoon, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank God we're Chris is looking an hour knackered and a half. already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 